Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Soccer Show and our latest round of listener questions. On today's show, we're asking how good David Beckham actually was. We're putting 11 defenders against 11 attackers, and we're looking at Wrexham's life after the Disney cameras have long gone away. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who should surely have a crew of Disney cameras around him at all times, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. Is that because I'm getting like nature documentary treatment, which could also be terrifying or because I'm going to be the source of some sort of uh, like live action remake? It's because you fascinate me. Okay, that's good. Do I get a celebrity narrator to to talk over top of what I'm doing? Uh, I I, I feel like I feel like Ed Helms did a good job with the Penguins one. We've discussed this before, but there have been some good ones. I think Meghan Markle was my least favorite for various reasons. I see it more being like a drama like the bear, like intense periods of stress followed by a super calm, that kind of okay. thing. What do you I'm think? into that. I'm yeah. into that for sure. Good. Yeah, let's Good. do that. Which bear character are you, Taylor? Uh, from The Bear, the from FX the bear. show? Yeah, yeah. Ooh. Probably, like, I don't know, whoever, whoever <laughs> probably probably the one who doesn't want to go to culinary school because it's like, you can't tell me what to do. That feels very, very on brand for me. Cousin Retchie. Yeah. <laughs> there we go, there we go. Who has an arc? He has an arc indeed. Graham Rothman's voice there. How are you, Graham? I am good, Ryan Baylor. Are you looking forward to your trip to Stamford Bridge tonight to see uh, Wimbledon play? Well, do you think it will be Chelsea reserves or do you think it'll be their first team? Or is there any difference right now because both teams are worth around £300 million given how Chelsea's squad is constructed? <laughs> what, what chance do you have? I don't know, Graham. Uh, at the point this is broadcast, perhaps uh, we will have a better idea of that. We are recording mere hours before I make my way to Stamford Bridge for the aforementioned League Cup, not the League's Cup game. Uh, Pochettino has said there'll be academy players involved in the squad. Whether they get anywhere to the field is another He doesn't know their names, though. Entirely. Like Just like how he doesn't no. know Malang Sar's name. <laughs> Did you, anyone see that? <laughs> he, was, he was asked, what's happened to Malang Sar? And he had no clue who that player was. <laughs> Which yeah, is not a great look. I mean, I mean, that's probably not the first time that's happened, I'm guessing, Graham. We'll see. Yeah. He was also asked about a goalkeeper who literally played for him in preseason. He was like, nope, I don't know that person either. You made him up. <laughs> Ryan, I'm obsessed with your opening question now. I- I've got Joe as Sid from The Bear. I've got Graham as Carmi, and I've got you as Sugar, because you're sort of the glue that keeps it together. Who, which one's Sugar? Taylor, remind me. The sister. Abby oh, Elliot. okay, yeah. I'll take yeah. that. She's kind of in control, right? Exactly. That would be yeah. the reason, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And Joe, I would love to be the Sid character who's the one who seems to have, like, the most self-motivation and drive, but also because of the youth. That is clearly Joe Lowry. Uh, so, Joe, you you get to be the uh, the young up-and-comer uh, to Graham's seasoned veteran who occasionally flies <laughs> saw, off the hand. I saw a picture okay. of, uh, right. of Jer- Jeremy Allen White with his shirt off, like, a few weeks ago. Yeah, I'll take yeah. that. I'll take that uh, to the yes. Rockwell, yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> it did. It, it has prompted the debate online of uh, if he works 18 hours in a kitchen, how is he also a bodybuilder? And <laughs> yeah. it is worth noting that I think he is starring in a wrestling no, just movie. Those, while those pans are very there. heavy. So maybe those Taylor. two things go together. Of course. Do you course. think? Yeah. Do you think his hamstrings wouldn't have been rejected at CrossFit, or or do you think they would have been? Yeah, I don't think Jer- uh, Jeremy Allen White with with my hamstrings would have worked very well for his bodybuilding program. Well, it doesn't seem like he's indulging too much in the delicious food he makes. Uh, let's say that much, shall we? Joe, are you good? Are you good? Have you seen the bear, by the way? <laughs> I have not seen the bear, and yes, I'm good. I like how Graham and and, uh, and Taylor had like these sort of elaborate intros. And mine is, you good, dog? Like you. You all right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Fine, Joe. Which Transformer would you be? Oh, you boy. Now? I liked it better Megan before, Fox. Ryan. I liked it better before. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Excellent answer, Graham. Uh, we're going to get to the listener questions very shortly, but first, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show for our bonus content. Should you choose to support us in that manner, we have a Discord, a very active community there. We do bonus podcasts, bonus video here and there, including one which I shall film tonight when I head to Southwest London. Let's get to the listener questions, though, shall we? Cigar Siramajiri has been in touch once again. Cigar asks, how good was David Beckham in comparison to today's players? As someone who started watching in the late 90s, I only remember him being overhyped and limited. Hmm. But looking at his resume, he had strong appearances at major clubs with a lot of silverware. Who from today's player crop would you compare with Beckham now? Thank you very much, says Cigar. Now... Um, Taylor, I saw, I was lucky enough to have seen David Beckham play, I think, five times with Manchester United. I was at the game where he scored from the halfway line in 1996 on the opening day of the season. That wasn't fun for me because I was supporting the opposing team. I mean, the, the simple answer to Cigar's question, Taylor, surely he was good enough to be in the Man United midfield in the Ferguson heyday, good enough to win six Premier League titles, a treble, La Liga, some MLS Cups. I think one of the best compliments, Taylor, I can give to Beckham when you particularly when you see him in action, is he just moves differently. There are certain players who move differently and hit the ball differently to other players. When he's going to put one of those diagonals, he leans back in a certain way that no one else does. Yeah, it's the outstretched arm as well. I used to practice that when I was a kid, that kind of crossing and free kick taking motion. He is the, if you had a silhouette of David Beckham, you would know it was David Beckham. Exactly, yeah. He also reminds me of, of the stories players would tell about the like the rondos they would do and how there was the top tier rondo where you would just have the ball driven at you every single time. And if you couldn't control it, you were immediately kicked out watching him pass the ball. It's not very forgiving. If you don't receive that ball perfectly, you're going to be in some trouble because he could drive that ball through the lines. I love this question, not just because I'm a Manchester United supporter, but because I hadn't really thought about David Beckham, the player in a long time. And I do think we think of him as David Beckham, Beckham, the institution, David Beckham, the brand. Uh, And to go back and watch him, I think I had in my head that he was very good on the ball, set piece delivery, but maybe a little bit overhyped. And to go back and watch some of his footage, I kind of forgot how good his work rate was, how much he worked off the ball, how much running there was, how much ground he was able to cover and how much pressing he could do. But then also how often he would move centrally and sort of pull strings and find passes. Uh, and, And I think in looking at like comparisons from today, I feel like there's a couple different ones and they're kind of all over the pitch. I think there's a reality in which if he were Spanish and came through Barcelona, he is basically Sergio Busquets. I think he could have done that role very well, not doing a ton of maybe defending as a defensive midfielder, but also being the the pivot and sort of keeping the ball moving. I think more recently, Kevin De Bruyne is the one that I think is a somewhat fair comparison. I don't think of either one as being 
super fast, but I think they're both fast enough. I think they're both good at getting into areas of the pitch where they shouldn't have space but do. They can hit through balls, they can hit crosses, uh, and they can score some goals themselves and be good at set pieces. So De Bruyne was one that jumped out to me right away. Uh, yeah, Joe Lowry nodding along sagely with the De Bruyne comparison. Yeah. I believe, looking through, it was Gary Neville made the same comparison. I, I like that shout. It wasn't one that was on my list. I had a really hard time thinking of Beckham comparisons because partially because I didn't grow up watching David Beckham, right? So I, I'm at kind of a deficit compared to everybody else on the show right now. But I think of Beckham first and foremost as a crosser, right? I think of him as someone who's going to be playing on the right side of a flat midfield four, who's going to be getting up and down that side. And the value he's providing is with that, with that pass technique, right? It's it's putting the arm out. It's with that perfect weight and bend. Aha, there it is. On those balls. Like, I, I think all that makes sense. But the, the thing is, that's kind of out of style today. And so Cigar's asking, like, who's the comparison? Those players don't really exist anymore. Like, teams don't cross the ball in the same way now in 2023 as they did back in, in the early 2000s, right? So I like the De Bruyne comparison because it almost feels like in some ways that's the modern version of Beckham being a little bit wider in a flat midfield four and crossing the ball in. What De Bruyne plays for Man City when he's healthy is in the half space. And I feel like there's a good chance that that's where David Beckham would have been used or deeper and a little bit more centrally. Taylor, like you said, maybe not all the way back as a Busquets type, but someone who is pulling more of the strings in midfield. There's lots of, of not destroyer types, but maybe not also super mobile types either in that midfield area that were excellent, maybe just after Beckham or, or towards the tail end of his career as well. And then one thing on the overrated, underrated thing, I also came into this sort of thinking, oh, Beckham, he was overrated. And then you go and look at the resume, and I think we may have, we may be in that special kind of vortex where a player is called overrated so much that they're also yeah. now underrated. I think totally that's agree. where we are with Beckham because you go through and look at some of the tape, yes, but also the numbers from the height of his his really early career, even with Manchester United. His best scoring season was 11 goals in 2001-2002. It's not crazy, right? But again, he's playing out wide. He's not a number nine. He had uh, really efficient seasons for Manchester United where he's racking up like close to double-digit goals and assists year after year after year with not a crazy amount of appearances either for Man United kind of in the late 90s and the early 2000s. So, yeah, I think maybe we're in this place where Beckham is kind of underrated now because of how much his celebrity status and, and, and yeah. position as an icon, both on and off the field, kind of overshadow what he actually accomplished. That, that's where I am, Joan. I didn't want to be a contrarian to, to Cigar's question. And I, I can understand where Cigar's question comes from because it's fair to say for a period that, that Beckham had a profile that didn't fit his ability as a player. So there's a good spell in the, early, in the mid-2000s where he's the most famous player in the world. I would say cer- certainly top two anyway. It was him and uh, Brazilian Ronaldo, I think, were the, the two kind of commercial icons of that time until Ronaldinho comes onto the scene. But Beckham at that time is not the best player in the world. But that that doesn't mean he wasn't a good player. He was still a world-class player. I mean, if you look through his individual awards, not just the the, the things he won as a, as a team player, he finished second in the FIFA Best Player in the World Award twice. He's in the Premier League Hall of Fame, which, you know, I don't know how much that matters, but he had the, the most assists in the Premier League in three seasons. He was, and I think, Ryan, you referenced this at the top of the, the question, he was part of one of the best midfield units in football history. That unit of Giggs, Keane, Scholes, Beckham, I think is only bettered by maybe Javi, Iniesta and Busquets, in, in, certainly in recent football history, looking at like the last 30 to 40 years. So I, I definitely think Beckham was one of the best players in the world. I would compare him in today's game to maybe Trent Alexander-Arnold, obviously the crossing ability. 
and the way that yeah it's, it's the way that he crosses as well like alexander arnold has that same like outstretched arm and the same kind of silhouette of, that that beckham had and, and and even in terms of figuring out where beckham would would play in today's game because he plays right side of i know he plays centrally for the la galaxy and mls but for United and for Real Madrid and for England, he was right side of a midfield four. And obviously teams do play midfield fours now, but it tends to be more of a, mid, a, a, a midfield diamond. It's more central. It's not There's not much width in that position. So I'm not sure Beckham's ideal position exists in, in most elite level teams. So I think there's a good chance that managers, if they were faced with a player like Beckham now, would, would maybe play him at, at right back and push him to central midfield, much like Klopp does with Alexander-Arnold. Yep, I would agree with that. And I think when you look at how often United would be just ruthless on the break, on the counter, a lot of that had to do with direct balls wide and then back in. And I feel like that that's something that Trent Alexander-Arnold is uh, especially skilled at when it comes to Liverpool is triggering some of those attacks by moving central, then hitting direct balls, or even just hitting direct balls uh, down the line. So I feel like that's something David Beckham would be more than capable of doing uh, in the modern game. The only other comparison I had, which is less for footballing reasons and more from a personality standpoint, there's an element of like, da- there's a comparison in my mind of David Beckham and Song uh, Hungman. I-, I still don't fully know how to properly pronounce his name. No matter what we do, we always end up saying it wrong. Uh, but Song is a player who I think of as being very hardworking. Uh, you don't really hear him complaining very often. You don't really see him getting in people's faces until you do. And he has moments of red where I don't know. In the dressing room. <laughs> exactly. Well, then that happens, yes. Uh, and and we do know that David Beckham got a boot kicked at him by Sir Alex Ferguson accidentally. So there you go. There's one comparison for you. Uh, but I think Son will have those moments where out of nowhere he'll he'll stamp on somebody or throw an elbow. And, and David Beckham very much has those too, very publicly, as we'll talk about later on, or I'll talk about later on in this episode uh, in the World Cup in 98. But he, he did have the kind of red mist moments where he was otherwise seen as this very mild-mannered, very soft-spoken, very... Uh, uh, like like charming, charismatic fellow who did have moments where you were reminded of like, oh yeah, he had to kind of battle his way up to get into the position he was in. There we go. Um, one other comparison I make, Taylor, and I'm not saying this necessarily on talent, but Hakan Chalanolu, I feel like is quite a similar player in terms of the free kicks, in terms of the passing range, in terms of taking ridiculous long shots and them often going in, having a bit of flair. Do we like that comparison at all? I was trying to think of a, a player who who sort of still has that anytime they're in front of a set piece within like 30 yards of goal, they're a threat. And yeah, that is that is Chalinoli. You're right. He does have that ability to kind of spring something out of nowhere or to hit really good uh, crosses from the mid-range into the box from set pieces. So yeah, I, I like that one. I still struggle to think of who I would have faith in the way I think I did David Beckham, the way Man United did, but then also the way uh, England did as well, that if he was... Within range, there was a good chance that thing was going on frame. Well, it's Messi, isn't it? And I think I think Messi has kind of killed the free kick yeah. specialist because you also had Janino Pernambucano, oh, yeah. who was like fantastic right. at free kicks, free kicks, freakishly good at free kicks. And then Messi just came along as the best at everything. Yeah. And it was just like, yeah, kill off the free kick specialist while I'm at it. <laughs> James, James Ward-Prowse says hi, doesn't he, Graham? Oh, yeah, I suppose he's not bad still. Messi's probably better <laughs> than West Ham United's new number seven. Debatable. Try we'll see Moise. until James Ward-Prowse uh, wins the League's Cup. We can't know for sure. Indeed. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's not a fair comparison until that point. All right, let's take a quick break. Thank you very much, Sagar, for that question. When we come back, we're talking Wrexham back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes 
and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Johnny G's been in touch. Good old Johnny G, always coming through to questions. What will happen to Wrexham AFC once the TV show... Oh, so they're, they're more than a TV show. I didn't realise that. Okay. Uh, once the TV show and crucially the money and attention that it brings is done. So what happens after the Hulu Disney run for Wrexham? We are Wrexham uh, is consigned to the history book. Season two, by the way, of uh, We Are Wrexham starts on September 12th. That's uh, detailing the spoiler alert promotion season of last season. Um First off, Graham, how how long do we think this series has legs? Yeah. Like, does it does it depend on how they do this year, or does it depend on when Ryan Reynolds gets bored and does some Deadpool things instead? Well, I think Ryan Reynolds is is very much heavily featured in the correct answer to this question, and the answer to that question is Ryan Reynolds makes a bunch of money off selling uh, Rexon because he is an investor in a number of different things, and that's what he does. So he'll have had. An exit strategy when he and uh, Rob McElhenney bought the club. And Johnny, Johnny G's question is exactly why I've kind of struggled to throw myself fully into the whole Wrexham thing. Now, I have I have enjoyed the show, um, but I think I've voiced the, the, my scepticism on, the, on, on this show before. I, I'm just always very wary that everything is for the TV show. And as you mentioned, Ryan, a TV show has a natural narrative and it has a natural cycle. 
and it will come to an end at some point. There will come a time where either viewers drop off or it just reaches the end of what is interesting. And I've even, I've even thought about things like, um, so spoiler spoiler alert here if you've not seen the, the show, skip ahead at this point, but when they don't get promoted in the first season, were they actually secretly happy about how that built the narrative for the second season? And also what happens if they don't get promoted in the second season? Because I think where you miss out on it the first time, you can build that suspense, you can build a narrative. If you miss out a second time, then maybe people aren't that interested for this, the following season if you're going for it a third time. So tying a TV show to a, a real-life football team is quite difficult. And at, at some point, as I said, I, say, I think they will, they, will, uh, they will sell up. It's been a good investment for them. I think even looking beyond the TV show, it was a great investment. This is a big club. In lower league terms, it's a huge club actually. In lower league terms, it's ridiculous that they were in the the, the national league and the teams that they were playing. They're they're bigger. I would say they're even bigger than a couple of Premier League teams like Luton or Bournemouth. I think Wrexham are a bigger club than them. So so there's huge achievable upside for them. And I think the plan will be to lift that club as high as the TV show makes sense, and then offload it for a lot of money. And at that point, they can look at where they are in the championship or league one or wherever and say yes we've made a bunch of cash out of this but you got a tv show out of it and now you're in a better position as well in the league structure and that's how they'll kind of uh, pitch it and sell it yeah that's fair enough taylor nothing ever lasts forever as we've been told in a song once what do you think (laughs) um i think it will be really interesting to see what the focus of the next season is or more specifically who the focus of the next season is because I I do think what we're getting at and what they talk about in the show is that Ryan Reynolds is the bigger star you had people dressing up as Deadpool when the acquisition went through Uh, fewer people dressed up as uh, Mac from Always Sunny so and I think though uh, that that is an important distinction because I, I do sort of believe that Rob McElhenney is more invested in being an owner of a sports team uh, because of that Philly background. They talk about it in Welcome to Wrexham in the first season, uh, but also he talks about it a lot in in his in his podcast, the Always Sunny podcast. It does feel like growing up as a sports fan in South Philly, as a sort of Eagles fan, a Sixers fan, uh, a Flyers fan, all of those things I think mattered to him, and I think he has a connection to the city via sport. And so I think he has that same connection or is – developing that same connection to Wrexham. And I have the feeling that he is much more invested in becoming an owner. Ryan Reynolds, I think, is okay with being an owner, but is more of the commercial property. It's an interesting acquisition. We'll see what happens. We can build a show out of it. We'll get more sponsorships, that sort of thing. I do feel like Ryan Reynolds will be the one to take more of a backseat. And that's where I say, if the focus becomes a little bit on the owners and a lot bit on the players and the manager and what they're doing and how they're surviving. And then maybe if the third season is now they've moved up, what comes next? How do you sustain this? I think if they transition it, transition it into an actual uh, sort of all or nothing style documentary about a team trying to work their way up and it becomes more about the team, then I think that documentary can continue to to be a thing. Maybe it gets less hype, but I still think there can be that money and that attention there with celebrity owners behind it. I think this is all very uh, like hopeful in my mind. Maybe maybe it's very naive because I do think that if those two just sell on to somebody who doesn't really care or isn't as invested, 
to see how much this has meant to the support of, of Wrexham and the, the broader community, I think it would it would be sort of a sellout move to then just like pull up stakes and move on to the next thing. And and this thing that you were trying to convince everybody you cared so much about and you were so invested in that you just easily sell on and now you've got your money and you move to the next thing. Uh, it would be it would be disappointing, I think. So I think a lot of it would be about what they do to sort of transition the focus onto the team and then also how they go about selling. If they sell when the team is solidly in the championship and has a good financial footing and, and a good plan for going forward, I think that's very different than if they sell a team who have way too big of a budget in League Two and aren't really able to get yeah. much above that. And now they're a team that could be insolvent in a couple of years. It seems impossible for this to go on forever. Like you said, Ryan, at some point they will have to sell because they don't have the financial might. The current ownership group doesn't have the, the financial might to compete at the top of, of the table, right? They don't have the financial might to go and really compete uh, at any sort of high level in the Premier League. So I would imagine if things go well, that means they're going to have to sell. And then, Taylor, to your point, it becomes, well, what are the conditions of that sale? And is it done in a way that sort of represents the spirit in which the first season of the show was conducted? In that there's a lot of reverence for the club. There's a lot of respect for the club. And how that process goes down, I think, will be fascinating to see. I also wouldn't be surprised. This is all obviously pure speculation. But if McElhenney stays involved in the club in some way, because at least in the first season, I, I still haven't finished the first season, by the way, but in the parts that I've seen, he is the one that gets featured more, even if, you know, the, the little bits that Ryan Reynolds is in are probably more impactful. He's the one that seems to have a deeper connection, although I think both of them develop that as the season goes on and as they actually go and watch games. Because to be honest, I think it would be impossible not to. Like, what a cool experience to be able to have as a human being to go and participate in something like that. Like, sports are special because there's something that we all get emotionally invested in, those of us that, that care about them anyway. So I would be a little surprised if McElhinney isn't doesn't stay attached to the club in some way, maybe as a minority owner or whatever. I think when they sell, they will have to sell the majority of the club, but maybe there's still a way to stay involved going forward. Yeah, I think you can see that there is there is an attachment there. But, you know, Ryan Reynolds was like a hardcore mint mobile ultra, and he sold that. Yeah, I think, I think more for McElhinney. More, <laughs> more for McElhinney than for Reynolds. Yeah. And Joe, to, to be fair, on, on that first season, I think there was more a sense of attachment from McElhinney because the cameras were clearly allowed in his family home, and Ryan Reynolds uh, perhaps partner said, you're not coming in mine. <laughs> and that changes that changes that don't changes they don't the they get a shot on. in the basement at some point on some weird couch i feel like that's uh i feel like that's one scene that sticks out to mind but yes your your point your point stands the one the one thing that always kind of stands out to me uh, if you go back to sunderland till i die uh the, in the second season when they have the Stuart donald ownership there's also the like the young spanish guy who seems to be a fairly sizable like minority owner uh, who's only there, I think, in like the first game and the last game. But the Sunderland fans are singing like Sunderland, the greatest club in the world. And he is sort of like, ha, look, they think they're the best club in the world. That's so great. Like, it's this very like, look at these poor lambs. They're so cute. And Ryan Reynolds, in a not dismissive way, seems to always have that same like, wow, you guys care about this a lot. Like, you guys are really into this. And there always seems to be a sort of like a detached amusement like this is so interesting this is so fascinating like he's amongst a different tribe or something rob mcelany seems to be very much like there's the scene when he's negotiating and involved in everything and it does feel like he is much more uh in into the day-to-day -day operations of a club and relaying the pitch and all that good stuff so that sort of divide i think is always 
interesting and in how that ends up playing out and where they go from that seemingly important divide. Yeah, I, I don't know if that is like a British football or Welsh football thing, though, with Reynolds, because at the start of the, the, the entire series, he says, like, he's not a sports guy. And clearly, yeah. McElhenney is a sports guy. So maybe maybe that is just a, a general novelty with how much sports fans care about their sports team rather than how yeah. much Wrexham fans specifically then care about Then why are you buying Wrexham. a sports team? <laughs> like, like, I hear to you, make Graham, money! This is where we're cycling right back to thing. my point. Yep. Yeah, he's not, he's not passionate about telecommunications either, Taylor, I think, to be fair. But we, <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Maybe... maybe he had a dentist from Always Sunny moment and like his cell provider just kept dropping to the point where he finally had enough and he was going to yeah. change it himself. Yeah. If only I had some gin right now. Oh, goodness <laughs> me. Goodness Taylor, me. from the moment that you said no one's dressing up as Rob McElhenney to go to Wrexham games, yeah. I've now been dreaming about dressing up as Fat Mac to oh, go yeah, to the course. race course ground for a, for a game. What Patreon video that'd be? Chimichanga's in a trash bag, baby. You could just do meat pies in a trash bag. I don't think it'd be yeah. that different. Surely <laughs> someone at Wrexham must have done the green man thing at some point, right? Surely, surely. Or did you get yeah, arrested? I think so. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Uh, well, I think, uh, thank you, Johnny, for the question. Um, the real answer is, of course, in the season finale, the Saudis buy the club and um, things go in a different direction. But thank you very much, Johnny, for the question. Uh, on from Johnny G to Dylan B, uh, who asks, in a typical contract, does a club have to pay a player their full wages when they get injured? Or are clubs paying out huge wages to players who can't play due to injury? Now, Joe, this is an interesting one because I immediately thought, yes, of course, players all get played 100% during their injury, but there's a bit more nuance to it than that, is there not? I have the word nuance in the second line of my answer to this question. So, yes, Ryan, I had the exact same experience researching this. Players still get paid. They will get paid for a certain period of time. The question very much depends on how long they're going to continue to get paid based off of the European League. So for long-term injuries, and I did not know this, so I'm glad that we got this question. Thank you, Dylan. Mm. For long-term injuries, teams can eventually offload a player and, and terminate a contract. In England, in the, uh, in the English Football League system, teams can offload injured players and ditch the financial responsibility that they have to that player after 18 months of an injury, and that's on the men's side. Troublingly, it's three months on the women's side, and that has been met with justifiable scrutiny. So the the idea there is, though, either way. Wow. So that's basically maternity leave. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's not great. So the idea is, yes, if the injury is severe enough, teams can get out from under these contracts. And that's not an ideal thing for the player, obviously. It's not a great situation for the club to be in either. And it's not those it's not those numbers in every league, right? So I've read, and it's a little harder to find information on this, but I've read that in Spain, it's 18 months. So similar to uh, England on the men's side, Italy, I found it six months, and then the club can reduce the salary by up to 50%. Apparently in the Bundesliga, and Taylor, I need you to call it Manuel, or maybe you already did in researching this, it's only six weeks. That's what I found, six weeks, which seems impossible to believe. Like, how many six-week injuries do we see during a season? Several. Bad news for Giorino. It, it's terrible news for Gio Reyna. The, the thing that I read repeatedly is that those players apparently just buy insurance to, to cover them during that period, and that's a pretty common thing. But that feels bizarre to me to the point where I feel like I must have missed something in that research, but no one is shaking their head aggressively. Yeah. So I feel like maybe I did not. It's weird. I did not know any of this, Dylan. And I'll be honest, I'm still a bit surprised that this is how the structure works. I would venture to guess that that doesn't happen very often just because six weeks is such a short amount of time. It feels like it's more of an emergency contingency if things have gone very, very awry. Because if you're a club that, that does that, if you have a person who's out for six weeks and you say, you know what, 
nah, we're not paying you. We're done. I, I have to believe that future players are going to look at that and think, uh, Agreed. I'm maybe less inclined Agreed, to sign. Agreed, but why you. have it at six? You know, like if, if everyone's like, oh, we, we could do it at six, but we won't really. Like, we, we love you. Like, we're going to keep I paying mean, you. Just make it not six weeks. I don't understand. My 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 answer relies on stereotypes, which just it feels like the Germans were like, this is the appropriate amount of time for you to recover from an injury. And if you have not recovered from an injury, then this is no longer an acceptable situation. Like I could <laughs> I feel like it would be a very cut and dry sort of thing. Yeah, they're like you've been skiing over the off season after a World <laughs> Cup. Six weeks. Oh, you're getting your pay hat. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is odd graham um i wasn't like joe i wasn't aware of the different nuances and different time periods between european leagues certainly i did find that eric abadal when he was out for over a year with his liver transplant he claimed that barcelona didn't pay him at all and the club denied it but who knows if barcelona pays anyone to it's be not fair like barca yeah <laughs> yeah so character for barcelona I, i'm frankly glad that joe went first because none of this stuff is in my research and i was going to give an entirely different answer but joe is obviously uh, correct and has looked more in depth into this situation um, I think I was in, in material terms the thing that I was going to bring up was how players wouldn't receive bonuses so they might still receive their, their base salary but if your your contract is heavily incentivized, as most contracts are and, and you receive an amount, a bonus amount for making an appearance or for scoring a goal or anything like that obviously you're not going to, or a clean sheet bonus if you're a goalkeeper, you're not going to get those bonuses if you uh, if you aren't uh, uh, playing, but um, Thibaut Courtois, Courtois out injured for I believe 9 months most of the season, it seems he will still receive his uh, 290,000 euros a week while he's uh, rehabbing at home, nice work if you can get it Indeed, yeah, and, and Joe mentioned insurance as well. And I think clubs have a, a, a certain um, type of insurance they can get. I think I called it saw it called catastrophe cover at some point. Basically, there was a, there was the situation where Michael Owen in the two thousand six World Cup when he did his ACL, um, the FA were paying fifty grand of Michael Owen's one hundred and ten grand weekly wages um, for for a long time, and then um, Newcastle basically sued the FA and got a bunch more money out of them. Taylor. Uh- I, I did I did a very quick search because I was wondering, I'm going to guess to Joe's question about the six weeks that this is just a, a theory. I can message Manuel later. Uh, I'm going to assume that's a like German employment law stipulation that applies to clubs because they are German employers. Uh, I believe in Germany, you are legally entitled to six weeks of continuous sick leave paid by your employer. So that's any employee for any company after which your health insurer will take over the costs. So I'm guessing that that is the same stipulation that would then apply to Bundesliga clubs, just Bundesliga clubs probably aren't going to put it into effect because an ACL tear is going to keep you out for longer than six weeks. And I think that would look pretty bad if a person tore their ACL and you said, never mind, we're not paying you anymore. But I'm guessing it's a a, a government mandate versus a league-oriented sort of thing. Wow. Yeah. If if your injury is taking you over six weeks, please call one eight hundred. Do we stand a crunch with the Balkan? Which yeah, I believe that's... is just like like get well soon. I think yeah. is what you just said. Yeah. Cool. That's okay. right. Yeah, very good. <laughs> All right. Um, I think any more on this question before we move on, Graham? Are we good? We no, covered? I think we've we've offended Germans <laughs> enough. Yeah, I think certainly with that last bit, which was a Family Guy reference, a deep one if anyone got it. Um, thank you very much, Dylan B, for that question. Ian Brady now who says, Meg Linehan noted recently 
Nothing prepares you for international competition except for international competition when she was speaking about the next US coach. Taking this to the player level, are the US a non-European top team significantly hurt by not being in Europe where they're regularly challenged in qualifying for and then playing in the Euros? I know huge progress was made by the new women's soccer countries in the last World Cup, but three of four of the finalists were European and the non-European team was at home and beat a European team in the 10th round of penalties. So, uh, Taylor, the the fundamental question, I suppose, here is, is Europe the best territory for women's soccer development currently? Yeah, I think so. Uh, And I think it's a fair point. I also want to note that this was not a fair point maybe a couple years ago. We had the conversation about Europe is catching up, about how other national teams are catching up. Don't get me wrong. But I, I think... For the longest time, it has not been the most stable environment uh, playing the women's game in Europe. You've had a few teams that were well-funded, and those teams are the ones that oftentimes have won a ton of silverware. There is much more funding on the club side and the uh, international side recently, and I think that that has shifted the, the paradigm a little bit. But I would say for a good chunk of time, Canada were as strong of a competitor as, as you could sort of hope for on a consistent basis it's the same sort of issue that we've talked about on the U.S. men's side. That does CONCACAF truly prepare you for elite, uh, like world class competition? No, it does not. It prepares you for the slog of World Cup qualifying uh, and then making it to a World Cup, and then we see what happens. The women's game is a little bit different because the U.S. women are are so comprehensively dominant. Uh, aside from the few instances in which Canada have have caused problems for them, so I, I think that it's it's a fair point to make now. I just also think maybe this is an, an unimportant distinction, but it's it's a good one for me. Just that like this isn't a thing that's existed for decades and U.S. hasn't dealt with it. It's that there's been such a rise in the funding and support for women's football in Europe that I do think that that is shifting. And I do think we now reach a point where we do need more players to be playing in European leagues and for other European clubs and just to get different opportunities and different varieties of style and tactics and approach. And and I think that is a very fair point. I think that Europe will continue to develop more and better players. And the United States, I think, will start to fall behind if they don't make adjustment, adjustments on the domestic side, especially at youth level. But then also, if we don't have more freedom of movement for players to go play abroad, I think that there are contractual reasons why players stay in NWSL. I think that there are reasons why U.S. soccer wants to grow their own domestic league and and keep eyes on that domestic league. But I think when you don't have something like the the Champions League or as strong of a competition as the European Champions League, I think it's always going to be a tough task. Yeah, on, on on the women's side, the, the Champions League, I think, is a huge differentiator and is and is going that is increasingly going to become the case over the next few years. That is a, a huge concern for American women's soccer and the NWSL. I mean, if you look at the the, the two finalists, uh, England and, 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 and Spain, off the top of my head, I can't think of a non a player who's not playing for a, a European club team there, one of the, 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 the top European teams. Obviously Barcelona have the or Spain have the Barcelona one, core. Yeah. Yeah. Say that again, Joe. Jenny Hermoso would be one, right? But, yeah, but she's, she's playing for the Pachuca, only one that came to yeah. mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um so Hermoso would obviously be be one, but other than than her, um, not many. And so it's not just the quality of the, the, the players, the, the teams that they're that they're facing on a weekly basis or a monthly basis in the Champions League. It's also the settings, you know, the fact that Barcelona are playing in front of a sold out Camp Nou or a sold out Bernabeu that is increasingly becoming common or Stamford Bridge if it's Chelsea or the Emirates they've had big crowds 40,000 I'm not saying that there is there aren't big crowds 
in the NWSL, but it, it just feels like the top of the women's game in Europe is starting to reach a level that the NWSL is straining to keep up with. Yeah, I think I agree with everything you guys have said so far. I'm a little less sure on the club side. I think the U.S. has produced some really impressive players that have never gone and played in the Champions League, and they're getting along just fine for the most part. I think about Sophia Smith and Mallory Swanson now. I mean, there's so many names that are just elite world-class players and haven't needed to go and do that to establish themselves at a world-class level. So I, I don't know. I don't deny that the Champions League final and some different matches later on in that competition are are really high quality games, but I think I think we're still a ways off from saying going to play for Chelsea in 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 England is an obviously better club situation than playing for a team in the NWSL. I think the quality there is higher than than maybe we've given it credit for so far. Not that there aren't flaws again to reiterate that, but zooming out and looking at the international side, which I think is what Ian's asking about here, really. Yeah, the U.S. Like you said it, Taylor. UEFA is stronger on the women's side right now. They're deeper. They're stronger, and basically any way you can define that term. And so the U.S. is at a disadvantage. Their qualifying tournament, the CONCACAF W Championship, was serving as Olympic qualifying and like a, a regional championship. And England get the Euros. So it's not it's not the same. It's not the same situation here. What I will say, to CONCACAF's credit, I think they know this, and they are clearly trying to address this. They have announced that there will be a CONCACAF W Gold Cup coming in February and March of 2024. So it's going to be eight CONCACAF teams and four Conme Bowl teams. That, I think, is a great idea, right? It, it, we, I think we may have talked about this when the announcement first came out a while ago. But it, this is a, a phenomenal idea for this region because they need more competition. They need more chances to play high-level teams. And we saw at the, uh, at the World Cup that there are some of those in South America. We'll see Brazil. We'll probably see Colombia, those kinds of teams coming and it just gives the U.S. a little bit more to test themselves up against. So I think at this point, it's unlikely that this region and even South America will catch Europe because it feels like on the men's side, they've distanced themselves as well. But steps can be taken, I think, are slowly being taken by the power players in this region. Yeah. Yep. I, I think you're right, Joe. And I think it's good to spotlight some of those successes. I, I think the key in those successes is not just resting on we're stable. And I think for the longest time, that is what was required to be a successful league on the women's side, is to be a, a, a thing that is going to exist next season for sure and not sort of fly by night. And I think for the longest time, NWSL's stability, unless we forget it's the, what, fourth, third professional women's league in this country in, in not a, a huge amount of time, uh, I think that that was enough for you're going to get paid, you can come here, you're going to play against very good opposition, and I think that appealed to a lot of players, both domestic and abroad. I think... That has changed as big clubs have started their own women's program, as the WSL has gotten more money and gotten more talent there, but then also with a lot of the scandals in NWSL. I, I think just being there isn't enough anymore. I think you have to be tactically innovative. Uh, I've heard players say that they chose not to play in NWSL, but instead played in Mexico or abroad because they didn't feel like the tactics were at the level that were going to help them develop as players. I don't know how wide-reaching that criticism would be. I think it was leveled at a few specific teams. But I think the more NWSL can do to not have gigantic scandals that hurt the reputation of the league and the people involved, I, I think that would go a long way towards promoting stability. I talked about with that with Meg Linehan and Steph Young, that so often we were having them on to talk about the latest scandal and the latest bad thing that's happened, and we weren't talking about this team that's playing really interesting soccer. And I think... 
the more the league can do to really stamp out those instances of abuse and to take those hard stances that I think that they they kind of didn't take for a very long time and have done a better job of more recently. I think it's it's less about just stability at this point and sort of treading water, and it's more about being a league that is adapting and evolving and changing and trying to keep pace. I think there are ways you can do it. I think they're embracing some of those, but I think there's still a, a good amount of work to be done. Indeed. Thank you very much, Ian, for that question. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking Cesc Fabregas. We're talking about <laughs> defenders versus attackers and much more. Back shortly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. We go now to Robert Cordova, who asks, how does the Total Soccer Show view the career of Cesc Fabregas now that he's retired? What do we think, Graham? Cesc Fabregas won the World Cup with Spain, won some Premier Leagues with Chelsea, did some Barcelona things when they were very good, uh, retired uh, this summer at the age of 36 after playing um, in the beautiful confines of Como in Italy's second division. Yeah, I wonder what attracted him to uh, the Northern Italian Lakes to play the final phase of his career. Also famously was involved it Starbucks? in it. <laughs> was it Starbucks? No. Maybe he was travelling to the... There's one in Milan, right? There's like a fancy one in Milan. I know oh, that, Ryan, yeah. because you documented it on your Instagram page. So maybe mm. Chess Fabregas travelled to the Milan Starbucks. Um, maybe he went to Italy because he's a big fan of pizza. Famously involved in a pizza fight with Salz Ferguson in the Old Trafford. Tunnel, um, he was a very good player, though. We should probably address this question sincerely. At some point, um, obviously enjoyed a great deal of success, Arsenal, Barcelona, and with Spain. I do think his career suffered for him um, leaving Arsenal and in terms of how we think of his career now that he is retired. So obviously he moves to Barcelona. He plays for one of the best teams in history at that point, but he's a bit of a rotational option. He's not a central pillar of of that team. He didn't play in his best position. He was largely a false nine for Barcelona, which was confusing to a lot of pundits and fans who had seen him play as a box-to-box midfielder in the Premier League. Then, obviously, he he comes back to English football, to the Premier League, and he goes to Chelsea, which, which then torches his legacy at Arsenal a little bit, and Chelsea fans never really took to him in the same way that they took to certain other legends like Drogba or Lampard or John or John Terry. So while I do think when we're looking back at his career, and particularly in the Premier League, because obviously that's where a lot of my focus is and that's where I probably watched him the most, although I watched a great deal of Barcelona when he was there as well and when he was with Spain too in major tournaments, but I think he was probably a top 10 to 15 midfielder in Premier League history to date. But when I think of players retiring 
I often think of players getting brought out to receive their flowers in front of the fans of the club that adored him the most. And with Chess Fabregas now, I don't really know what that club is because it's not Arsenal because of what happened after he left Arsenal, goes to Chelsea. It's not Chelsea. Is it really Barcelona, even though he achieved good success there? Obviously, their icons are... Iniesta and Xavi and Messi and those sort of guys. So, yeah, I think I, I don't really know what Fabregas's club is now that his career is over. And I think that affects how we think of him and his legacy. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And Taylor, I wonder how Barcelona fans view him because he was the uh, promised to be raised by that club. He was taken away from La Masia, not taken away. He moved from La Masia age 16. He was expected to go through the Barcelona ranks, but sort of left on his own account because he thought he'd get more chances at Arsenal, which he very much did. Well, we don't know actually what he would have got at Barcelona, to be fair. But I wonder if that taints his legacy for the Catalonian fans as well, because he he, he could and should have stayed, perhaps. Uh, I don't think it does only because Gerard Pique does the exact same thing, goes to Manchester United, then comes back and has massive success. I think that's the difference, is that when Fabregas comes back, he isn't that captain leader figure who's inspiring this team to new levels or being the kind of spine of that squad. He's a player who comes in into Graham's point is sort of also a player who plays for Barcelona and is a very good player who plays for Barcelona and has that connection. But you don't think of him first and foremost as a Barcelona player to Graham's point. I think I probably think of Cesc Fabregas as an Arsenal player more than anything else, maybe a Spain player where he wins the Euros uh, twice starts both of those finals and the World Cup where he comes on as a sub and gets the assist for the winning goal. So maybe it's Spain, maybe it's Arsenal. Graham, my question then for you becomes like he doesn't win. I mean, he wins the FA Cup, which is big silverware. He finishes second in the Champions League with Arsenal. He doesn't win the Premier League. I think of that being a time for Arsenal where mm. they are like very erratic. And it's a lot of players who are like, oh, yeah, that guy played for Arsenal. Like looking at the team, I think one of his last uh like competitions he plays and he's a runner-up in the league's cup in the league cup in 2007 uh they lose to chelsea that team has like almunia colo torre philippe senderos uh theo walcott's in there denielson abu diaby jeremy aladier uh adabayor is there johan juru it's just it's a lot of players who i feel like it's that time period of arsenal where there's there's not that same tier caliber of player that they had in the generation prior where it was just world-class players coming through making a difference being sold on to even bigger clubs or even better clubs but with with that arsenal team in that time it's much more murky and it's it's much less of a like imposing threatening arsenal team and i think because he is part of that team he gets painted with that same brush maybe unfairly yeah, I mean, that that period of history for Arsenal is really transitional. They're moving into something new. They're moving into a new stadium at that time as well. Like, it's not Highbury. It's, 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 when I think of Chess Fabregas, it's, it's the Emirates Stadium. He's one of the first kind of superstars of that new stadium for Arsenal. And at that time, Arsene Wenger is trying to tra- transition Arsenal into a more of a possession-orientated style. I think he's looking at what's happening in, in, in Spain. Arsenal play Barcelona in the Champions League final around that time. Maybe Wenger is inspired by that and how um, Barcelona beat them in that game and Chess Fabregas was very much the the poster boy for this new approach but it felt like Arsenal struggled to find the players around him that were up to the same standard I mean I think of that time as like Bentner era Arsenal and and the funny thing about Bentner era Arsenal is there was a worse era to come after that there was like Willian era Arsenal which was which was not (laughs) ideal and they have come out of come out of that 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 phase of their history so I guess we can laugh about it uh now but 
yeah, it's it's a strange period in Arsenal's history, and for that reason, maybe he is also not thought of in the same way that Patrick Vieira's thought of or, or Thierry Henry. I, I do think, in terms of his all-round game, obviously Vieira had more defensive instincts and was more of a physical specimen than, than, than Fabregas, but as an all-round central midfielder in the modern game, I think Chess Fabregas was potentially a, a better player than Patrick Vieira. I know that's a, maybe a bit of a bold take, but he's not thought of in the same way because of how Arsenal was a different club at those two different times. Okay, so um, I think Cesc Fabregas, we can all agree, is Jack in the Box. He's good, you know, you, you, you like it now and then, but you wouldn't go out of your way to uh, celebrate it. Is that I, fair? I don't know if you meant the restaurant or the actual toy. You meant the restaurant, correct? Or I Jack think- Wilshire. <laughs> I meant the restaurant. Uh, I, have, I have opinions. Anyway, Robert, thank you very much for that question. Let's go to a final one from Cameron L. This is a good little hypothetical. Joe's shoulders are twitching. He's got the juice flowing for a hypothetical. We've got two teams, says Cameron. One team is composed of 11 of the greatest defenders in the history of the sport. The other is composed of 11 of the greatest forwards in the history of the sport. Which team would you wager to win this match? Not only, Joe, is it a hypothetical, it's a prediction for you, which is the double header for you. Lovely stuff. I am tempted, Joe, to say defenders, because they'll be better at defending than the attackers will be, and they'll be better at attackers attacking as the attackers will be at defending. There you go. Yes. I think that is the same reasons why I answered the way I answered. I didn't follow any of that. I'm not sure if I did or not. My my theory <laughs> is my my theory is it's easier to destroy than to create. That's not just my theory. That's I think just a fact about how soccer works. We see so few goals in every game. It's really hard to break down a low block. And so my idea is this defenders team that I've created, by the way, and I'm eager for feedback on. My defenders team will sit in a four four two block. They'll draw the attackers forward, all of them. Uh, and then they're going to wait for a mistake, win the ball, and go the other way. And I think it's going to be easier for these players to go and attack in transition and really force the attackers to try to break them down than it will be for the attackers to actually succeed while maintaining any sort of semblance of defensive structure. So either we're going to get one on the counter, us defenders, or we're going to draw and send it to penalties and, and we're going to win there. So my – go ahead, Graham. Go uh, ahead. No, I was going to say I, I agree with your theory, Joe, and that's kind of roughly where I landed. Immediately, like, instinctively, I thought defenders would win just because um, – and this is where I offend every defender in history – but defending is easier than attacking, right? And that, that's, what you're, that's what you're getting at. Is that breaking down a low block is, is, is the trickiest thing in football. But then you're saying like the defenders would score in on a break. I just I just don't have a great deal of faith in their ability to execute that. So wait, the, the wrinkle is like Grim, you wait need to until score you see my team. Wait till you see my team. It's gonna happen. So I'm gonna run through my team. Uh, the back line doesn't really matter a whole lot because they're all great defenders. I went with more recent ones because those are easier for me to pick out. I have Chiellini in goal just to irritate Ryan. Attaboy. Thought that'd be funny. Um, no. I've got Danny Alves, who I think is in jail, and I don't really want him on my team, but he was the best overlapping right back I could think of. Uh, I have Sergio Ramos, Virgil van Dijk, and Jao Cancelo uh, in my back line. And then here's where it gets juicy, Graham. My midfield two in a 4-4-2. Philip Lamb and Trent Alexander-Arnold. Feel really good about them, you know, sort of starting attacks from midfield. I've got Akraf Hakimi on the right and Marcelo on the left side of midfield. And then I have Alfonso Davies and David Alaba because David Alaba can do anything. Up top, that team can score goals on the break. You can't tell me that with Davies and Hakimi and Marcelo yeah. and Trent that they're not scoring a goal on the break. See, the thing is, though, your definition of defender in this question has been is, is different to mine. My team is full of Paolo Maldini's and John Terry's, and I'm not sure that they're uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that they're scoring a goal anytime soon. 
That's more. So Graham is now making it specific defenders in specific situations. Uh, I I am team defenders win this game nine out of ten times. I think if you play this game ten times, defenders win it nine times. I think it's just it is, if not easier to be a defender, it's easier to. I think work together to defend as a unit than it is to figure out an attacking plan to attack as a unit. And, and if I go with a pickup analogy, every time I've played in a, in a pickup team that has a bunch of people who want to attack, you get a bunch of people doing individual things and kind of standing around goal waiting for something to happen. And that leaves a ton of space to counterattack in behind. So I think you'd see defenders sort of wait, pick their moments, and then take it to the attackers who would probably leave like five players forward, like a la PSG. Uh, and then just with the, the numerical mismatch there, I think the defenders end up getting some goals and winning, even if it is uh, a team of 11 John Terrys. That's harder to defend. I'm not going to yeah. lie. The flaw, in, the flaw in this theorizing is that a team of the 11 greatest forwards in the history of football would include Lionel Messi and so like 30 seconds into the game yeah. he's just picked up the ball 35 yards out and it's stuck <laughs> in the top corner oh right okay he can do that yeah sure he can do that at well yeah yeah he's and not that, defending that, a that, corner though Graham <laughs> he's not yeah but we can get Dion Dublin to do that he who's, can... the, who's the most like reducer of defenders because then that we're just going to put that in there as well like Lionel Messi gets on the ball someone two foots him in the leg and uh, he's out of the game Terry Butcher there we go. Yeah. There we go. That's one of our defenders. We'll put him in there. And now, now we've made it equal. Okay, Taylor, my follow-up question. Would this be a good game? I'm going to say no, it's going to look like a bad trading exercise. Yeah, I think so. I really do think, especially if it was like, just like, let's see what happens. I think no one takes it that seriously, except the defenders will take it seriously because the defenders don't want to be beaten. I think the defenders win. I think it gets kind of lopsided and kind of sloppy. That's my feeling. Anyone else got any feelings, Joe? Yeah, probably not a good game. I, I think it's just going to look like one team trying to break down the door of the other for 90 minutes and, and maybe at a counterattack or two, right? Which generally doesn't make for the best game. So even though I think defenders are going to do some crazy yeah. stuff in transition, even if it's Maldini and Terry kind of lumping long balls back and forth to each other, I think there would be some joy in that. But overall, probably not a great game. Graham, 11 Harry Maguires versus 11 Nicholas Bentners. What happens? <laughs> I mean, we need to see this for science, first of all. Um, I, uh, Harry Maguire poses a threat from set pieces, I think. Yeah. So yeah. maybe Harry Maguire wins that. Yeah. Not I they'll just like run on. into each other and fall over. That's pretty the ball's much it. never going to touch the ground, is it? Goodness. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. An excellent thought exercise there from Cameron L. Thank you very much. Totalsoccershow.com slash questions, by the way, listener, if you'd like to join in the fun and send us one we do hope you do uh but in the meantime taylor rockwell thank you very much for your jolly good answering of questions today thank you my friend my sugar i believe to bring it back to the original introduction which is an odd one to say yeah graham thank you very much sir yes chef thank you ryan bailey yes chef there we go and joe lowry keep on cooking baby yeah let's all keep cooking forever <laughs> wonderful yeah. stuff listener thank straight you. out the show <laughs> exactly yeah that's uh, uh, season 2 finale I believe listener thank you very much for joining us on this listener questions episode we appreciate you we'll be back on the feed very shortly but for now bye